Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is part three of my interview with Jason Eberl and John Berhaney. In part one, we discuss Jason's claim that there is no sufficient moral reason for a Catholic to request a, relig- a religious exemption from a COVID-19 vaccine mandate, as well as the authoritative nature of the Church's current teachings regarding these vaccines. In part two, we evaluated Jason's claim that Catholics who object to vaccine mandates exhibit either scrupulosity or voluntary ignorance. We then addressed ways that people can properly form their conscience on the mandate issue. In this interview, we address the role of public health vis-a-vis Catholic teaching and explore notions of the common good with regard to the vaccine mandates. We conclude by discussing how Catholics are called to prophetic witness on the mandate issue in the public square. Jason Eberl and John Berhaney, welcome back for part three of our interview. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be back. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Good to uh, have one more conversation on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, part three is going to be it. We're, we're going to end it on, <laughs> on, on this one here. But So we've talked about a number of different topics over the past uh past two podcasts. So I'd like to get right into um, the issue of the role of public health authorities. So Jason, going back to the America article from this past summer, you wrote this, quote, Pope Francis's assertion, and you're talking about the assertion, um, the the moral obligation to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. So Pope Francis's assertion may seem to run afoul of the CDF statement that vaccination, quote, must be voluntary, unquote. But these two claims can be reconciled by distinguishing one's personal moral obligation from governmental or institutional compulsion. We must ask what the legitimate role of governmental and institutional authorities are with respect to addressing matters of public health. Typical ethical assertions in both Catholic and secular arenas of the the primacy of respect for individual autonomy were initially developed and usually applied in the context of clinical or research encounters. Public health interventions, on the other hand, operate by a complementary but distinct set of ethical principles in which respect for individual autonomy is attenuated by the moral imperative to protect others from harm. Choosing not to be vaccinated unless one has a legitimate medical reason violates the foundational harm principle of public health ethics, unquote. Now, there's a lot in that in that paragraph, but I'd like to start out, Jason. I, I find it interesting that you use, actually twice uh, in this quote, you use the term individual autonomy rather than informed judgment of conscience, because that's kind of what we'd been talking about in, in the previous two um, the previous two podcasts. So in the Catholic tradition, these terms don't necessarily mean the same thing. So I'm wondering, why did you use the term individual autonomy here? Yeah, no, great, great question to start us off. So both Catholic and secular ethics recognize that individual persons have certain inalienable rights over their own bodies and minds that require, and this is affirmed in the ethical and religious directives uh, from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, that free and informed consent for medical interventions. And this is why no one, you know, obviously should be held down and have a vaccine jabbed into their arm, right, against their will. But we should be clear 
um, that this is not the same as the type of individualist ethic promoted by moral or political libertarianism, which has actually been roundly critiqued throughout the tradition of Catholic social teaching from Pope Leo XIII onward, and again, could lead to this uh, type of moral subjectivism. Both the notion of individual autonomy, at least as defined by Immanuel Kant, who's often cited but is just as often misunderstood on this point, (laughs) and the Catholic understanding of informed judgment of conscience, entail a responsibility for a person not to create and act upon their own subjective vision of what the moral law requires of them, but to do their utmost to employ reason to discover what the moral law requires of them and to act accordingly. St. John Paul II actually raises precisely this concern in Veritatis Splendor, number 32, quoting him, The individual conscience is accorded the status of a supreme tribunal of moral judgment, which hands down categorical and infallible decisions about good and evil. To the affirmation that one has a duty to follow one's conscience is unduly added the affirmation that one's moral judgment is true merely by the fact that it has its origin in the conscience. But in this way, the inescapable claims of truth disappear, yielding their place to a criterion of sincerity, authenticity, and being being at peace with oneself, so much so that some have come to adopt a radically subjectivistic conception of moral judgment. That's the end of the quote. And so just to unpack that a little bit, unlike Kant, who distinguishes acting autonomously from acting heteronomously, that is one's will being dictated to by another, doing things just because someone else tells you to do it, uh, the church actually calls for us to inform our consciences by thinking along with the church's magisterium. And as I've argued, we've talked about before, right, that I think the magisterium has been clear that when it comes to requesting a religious exemption for COVID-19 vaccines, that one, you know, is it more permissible to receive these vaccines? So the church has spoken precisely on this point. And as John has said throughout our conversation, the church knows how to teach and it has. Um, So what we need to avoid are individuals following their own subjective vision of morality. That's the bad side of individual autonomy, that kind of libertarian notion of individual autonomy, as opposed to allowing their conscience to be um, to be formed in line with the church's teaching, but what I fear may be happening is the the consciences of a lot of people are actually being uh, misinformed heteronomously by political or media forces outside the church's magisterium. Interesting, and I have some questions about that. But John Berhaney, uh, your response? Oh yeah, I mean I'm I'm wanting to uh, I guess grant Jason his his concern. Uh, I th- I think one thing I said in our last conversation was that I I don't think a believing Catholic, even one I disagree with, is really sort of living in a dictatorship of relativism. If somebody is thinking within the moral principles of the church, uh, trying to form his conscience according to existing church teachings, fundamental considerations like stewardship, you know, appropriate stewardship over one's body, he, he, he's not going to be in that dictatorship uh, of relativism. Uh, not sure how to tie all that to um, autonomy and heteronomy uh, as such as, as Jason described them. I, I did say, just to clarify a point for the past conversation, the church, I, I, maybe I need to say, has known how to teach. But I did say in that conversation, the fact that the church has mechanisms uh, of teaching authoritatively and 
and can, in a sense, communicate to people that, that a teaching is uh, significant, authoritative, binding, and so on. It, it does have those, uh, those means. That doesn't mean that any given person, a pope, I'll say, at any given time is exercising that office um, responsibly, clearly, consistently, and so on. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we, we took up in our past conversation was Pope, uh, Pope Francis's comment in an interview to a TV station uh, or uh, a short statement he made in a so-called public uh, service announcement. You know, th- those do not, th- those simply are not recognized vehicles for communicating moral truth or binding teaching. I've actually been quite concerned about this whole issue, and I'll just say briefly that as when I went to do some reading on it, one of the first people cited as as muddying the waters a bit, a uh, little bit to my chagrin, was Pope John Paul II uh, in writing his book, Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Uh, you know, a kind of a, a, a kind of a papal, uh, a, you know, rather official address, you know, some kind of address that really wasn't tied to teaching. So anyway, uh, when I say the church knows how to teach, it it does have instruments, it does have terminology, it it actually has a considered uh, teaching, uh, which which people can find in, uh, I think it's Donum Ecclesia, a document on the uh, the vocation of theologians from the late 1980s, where it talks about what the church can teach on with authority, and you know, it's not anything that a pope or a, a congregation, the head of a congregation, happens to say on a given day, e- even if it's during working hours. So, uh, anyway, I um, I just want to make those clarifications, but um, you know, I don't have a lot of thoughts on the issue of the term uh, personal autonomies. I guess I'd, just, I'd like to just follow up just really, really briefly, Jason. Sure. And the reason I asked the question is that this understanding of, and maybe I'm reading it in a different way than you're intending it, but we hear one of the challenges that a lot of healthcare professionals, I mean, the CMA is, is very keen on this, is this whole understanding that autonomy is the be-all, end-all principle uh, of healthcare ethics, at least the secular healthcare ethics. And, you know, the individual autonomy can do whatever, a person can do whatever they want, and they can force medical professionals to do what they want. And I'm, so I'm, I'm reading that um, in, in terms of what you said here, and, and it makes me a bit uncomfortable in terms of, you know, the autonomy versus what we're really talking about is informed judgment of conscience. And I just, if it, just a brief response to that. Yeah, just to clarify, that's what you just articulated, Joe, is absolutely not what I mean by individual autonomy. Okay. Um, and in fact, I've... I have uh, a couple articles and a couple more in the works uh, defending the rights of uh, physicians to consciously refuse healthcare services uh, that are morally objectionable. Uh, and I should also note that even the the architects of secular biomedical ethics, um, uh, Beecham and Childress in their book, Principle Biomedical Ethics, if you look at the latest edition, even though respect for autonomy is still the first principle they talk about of the four, they are very clear, they're emphatic even, that we don't mean that this is the preeminent end-all, be-all principle. Again, it hasn't been received that way, which is why they had to right. then kind of say that, right? right? So you're exactly right, right Joe, in your, in your diagnosis. But yeah, no, that's not what I mean by individual autonomy. Yeah. 
All right. All right. So let's move on. So in this quote, I just want to uh, read another part of it and ask you a question on. So Jason, you also said in this quote, quote, public health interventions operate by a complementary but distinct set of ethical principles in which respect for individual autonomy, there it is again, uh, is attenuated by the moral imperative to protect others from harm, unquote. All right. So in making this statement, you, and I, I would say uh, uncritically, draw from a secular essay from 2002 in the Canadian Review of Public Health. So a two-part question. How exactly are the public health ethical principles which you cite here different from those that a Catholic or other would draw upon in making an informed judgment of conscience? And two, is a Catholic bound by these secular principles? Yeah. So um, first, as a kind of overall point, the first point worth making is that Catholic and secular ethical principles aren't always opposed to each other. And in fact, there's a significant lacuna of developed Catholic bioethical thought uh, in the arena of public health. And as I mentioned, I'm working right now uh, on co-editing a special issue of the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly on Catholic perspectives on public health ethics because we don't really have a lot of uh, scholarly development in this area. So with respect to the principles cited in my article, we shouldn't dismiss them simply because of their secular origin, right? That'd be the genetic fallacy. And, and I'm not saying you're doing that, but because you read the question, you know, are these compatible, right? So that's what we need to examine. Are these principles compatible with Catholic teaching? So because I don't really spell out the four principles in the article where I just linked to the other article, let me just take a minute to kind of spell them out. So here's the four, the, these four principles. So first we start with a basic presumption of individual liberty. However, there's a built-in caveat that one's exercise of liberty may be restricted if it presents a risk of harm to others, for others, of course, have their own liberty not to be harmed. Um, and that's why we have speed limits and stop signs and so on, why you can't yell fire in a crowded theater and so on. Um, next, if we're going to limit the exercise of individual liberty, the least restrictive means should be used to promote the good of public health. So one starts with education, then inducement. And if such measures don't work, and if the public health threat is sufficiently significant, coercive or punitive measures may then be legitimately employed. And we've mm, seen there's a discussion right there. Oh yeah, no, this is you know this is an avid debate, right? But and so I'm just outlining the principles, and yeah, how we're applying them. You know, I could I I could be corrected upon for sure. Um, but I just want to point that we've seen all these steps right in the process play out over the past year and a half. So you know when the vaccines are first rolled out public health authorities attempted to educate the public about their safety and efficacy and encourage everyone who doesn't have a medical contraindication to be vaccinated. When that didn't result in a sufficient number of people seeking vaccination to attain herd immunity, incentives were provided in various localities, uh, ranging from free Krispy Kreme donuts to being entered into a million-dollar uh, state lottery. It's only when those incentives failed to produce, again, a sufficient increase in vaccinations did mandates arguably become necessary. Now, for some, being mandated to take a vaccine might seem to be more of a restriction on personal liberty than other existing measures, including mandates to wear a face mask in public, stay at home, or stand six feet away from others. Yet the harmful effects that these other measures have had on the economy, effective education, and mental health all indicate that mandatory vaccination is a less harmful way of minimizing death and other ill effects of COVID than these other strategies limiting its spread. Again, this is an avid point of debate. I'm staking a position on it. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we could debate it, but we won't. But, here. but, my, but here's my point. There's no right. intrinsically Catholic reason to debate that, right? These are empirical matters. 
These are something that secular ethicists, secular public policy, public health people are debating, and Catholic experts in this area should be debating it along with them. But it's not a it's not a Catholic principle versus secular principle debate, right? The third principle is that there should be reciprocity, namely no unfunded mandates. And this is arguably covered adequately or not by public authorities providing economic relief measures during mandated lockdowns and making the vaccines freely available. Uh, Reciprocity also informs efforts to minimize the penalties for those who choose not to be vaccinated under a mandate. Uh, For example, requiring regular testing instead. This is the Vatican strategy. In case your listeners didn't know, there are Vatican City State has required either vaccination or regular testing for all Vatican City State employees. Um, Mask wearing or potentially reconfiguring one's job. So you could say reassign a nurse to perform non-patient facing functions within a hospital, right? And then finally, transparency demands that all stakeholders, which is all of us really, right, have a voice in the public deliberation and ultimate determination of public policy. Now, of course, that doesn't entail that everyone's going to get their way because uh, that's not feasible. And I think it's fair to say that mainstream and social media have allowed everyone's voice to be lifted up and heard as COVID mitigation policies have been deliberated at pretty much all levels of governance. A lot there to discuss. Uh, John Brahaney, your response. I, I have to say that uh, I, I know less about public health ethics than I do about brain death. I'm not saying something. I've certainly read a lot more about brain death. Um, but, but I did do some reading on public health um, over the last week and recognize, you know, all of the basic principles that Jason laid out. They, they make a lot of sense. I can't remember. Uh, I heard transparency. I think one of the other, uh, I think one of the other things that is stressed, I, I think, in public health, and I would guess then in the ethical deployment of public health measures is trust, maintaining the trust of the public. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I have no harm. Uh, I'm sorry, I have no problem, you know, with these principles in the abstract. I, I guess it comes down to uh, the application, you know, uh, for example, the, the principle essentially of the, the least infringement of, of basic civil liberties, you know, how is it that a public health measure that might be uh, oriented, I guess, to protecting the vulnerable or slowing the spread of COVID-19 or something like that, be compatible, I, I suppose, with that issue of least infringement and, and even of fundamental human rights, I suppose consistency has got to be in there too somewhere. Uh, but, uh, you know, for example, I, I can recall, now this goes back some months, uh, in the state of Las Vegas, I think they shut down churches but kept open casinos and things like that. So that, that would be an issue of, that would be an issue, I guess, of consistency. I guess two points I, I just pick up uh, from Jason you know, earlier he said that uh, I guess I guess there was a phase of public education and persuasion. That was one point. Now, I, I guess I see public health service announcements go by. Uh, I, I certainly heard a lot of encouragement, but when I and other people have had questions, sometimes about safety 
or some sometimes about efficacy. You know, I can I struggle to find you know in a public and objective forum a robust discussion uh, of safety, a robust discussion uh, of the VAERS reports and things like that. For example, the efficacy argument. Uh, you know, it's been hard to wrap our minds around that, in part because our agency, I think it was the Centers for Disease Control, uh, in May of this year, made a decision to not track breakthrough uh, infections, that is, people who had gotten vaccinated and then later got COVID-19. Now, I think based significantly on data from Israel, and I think to some extent from from data from the UK, we have a better idea about the waning efficacy of the vaccines over time. It's a very complicated matter. But um, honestly, I have not found that that robust, objective discussion, public debates, any of those things, and, and then this I, uh, this other thing Jason said, like the the media or somebody out there has has allowed all voices to be heard. I don't know. I mean, all kinds of very respectable uh, voices, including uh, you know, I think a world authority on public health studies and and stuff like that. John Yanitas uh, was shut down. Uh, almost immediately in the debate about the the possible spread of COVID nineteen and um, you know how prevalent was it, how dangerous was it, uh, those kinds of things. A number of other professors at places like Stanford and Harvard significantly have been shut down, sometimes retaliated against. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, banning people who cite public reports. I, you know, I, I haven't seen it. Now that's, that's a step or two removed from the, um, I, I think from true public health and those principles, you know, which are good. But I, I, I would say I accept all the principles and I, I guess we can maybe chat for a minute or two about how they could or, or should have been applied a little better, uh, in retrospect. Anyway, it's the first thing I've got. Yeah, that that actually kind of gets me into my next question, I think, maybe. Um, Because, John, you made a a good point, I think, about there's the principles in the abstract, but then there's the application of the principles. And I think that's really where the discussion would be. And again, we we could go on for hours about that. But I guess with that in mind, framing the question about the applications of, of the principles, Jason, can government authorities in the name of public health force people, actually coerce people because we're starting to see people lose their jobs and, and, and people actually, and people are, are also starting to respond back against those mandates. But can government authorities in the name of public health force people to act contrary to their, to their consciences? Uh, yeah. So first, just a couple of brief comments in response to what John just said. I, again, I don't disagree with John that you know, things have not been handled perfectly, for sure. And I also agree that that trust and trustworthiness and consistency is absolutely required. You know, the, the example John cites of yeah, Vegas. I used to live in Vegas. Um, the you know, keeping the casinos open and not the churches. Yeah, that's that's inconsistent. Um, I should note though, consistency goes both ways. And if you know someone who's again is objecting 
conscientiously to receiving one of the COVID-19 vaccines precisely because, again, they may have other reasons, but if it's precisely because of the fetal cell lines and their connection to these abortions, then, again, lots of people probably didn't know this in the past, but it's been, again, well promoted in the the media now about how much these same cell lines are used ubiquitously in the creation of over-the-counter pharmaceuticals, uh, food additives and processed foods, all sorts of things. So again, if you're going to take, if you're going to refuse the COVID-19 vaccine for that particular reason, then you should also stop taking Tylenol or Advil and again, do your research to find out everything else that are connected to these cell lines and again, act consistently. So yeah, I agree with John uh, on all those points. So to go back to your question, uh, Joe, um, so the way you frame the question points to the very crux uh, of the issue at hand. Uh, whether government authorities can force someone to act uh, contrary, uh, you just said to their conscience, but really the better way of putting it would be to act contrary to their rightly formed conscience. Um, because the answer- I think that's what I had. I think that's what I had and I forgot to say. Yeah. Because okay, that's, yeah, uh, okay, that, that's an important distinction, right? Um, that's actually the question. Yeah. Okay. It's your rightly formed conscience. Okay. Sorry. My bad. So, so, the, so the answer on that is, of course, no, right? Flat, no. But earlier in our conversation, I can't remember if it was in, within part one or part two, um, John invokes St. Thomas More, uh, who, of course, was canonized by the church uh, by standing by the dictates of his conscience, uh, even unto death by command of the King of England. Um, now, Sir Thomas's situation is uh, quite different uh, from that of an individual Catholic today faced with the question of how to respond to a vaccine mandate. Uh, because, you know, Sir Thomas was thinking along with the church, which had rejected King Henry VIII's declaration that he was head of the Church of England. While the English monarch had traditionally been recognized as defender of the faith, only the Pope was head of the church, or is head of the church, wherever it may be. Sir Thomas was thus acting on a rightly informed conscience and valorously suffered the consequences of martyrdom. Now, as I've been arguing, individual Catholics refusing COVID-19 vaccination for non-medical reasons are not thinking along with the church, which has spoken. I think a note from the CDF is fairly definitive. If you want a dogmatic constitution from a Vatican Council three, okay. But I still think a note from the CDF saying it is permissible to receive these vaccines despite their connections to abortion. To me, that's enough to say that that should not be your reason, your only reason for refusing the vaccines. So that means this is not a Thomas More situation, right? No institutional or civil authority is mandating vaccination and thereby declaring themselves to displace the moral authority of the church. Again, they're exercising what the church has long recognized as a legitimate sphere of political authority. Uh, I emphasized this point earlier in our conversation when discussing St. Thomas Aquinas's view of human law in relation to natural divine law, as well as the church's more recent teachings uh, in the Vatican II Declaration, Dignitatis Humanae, which warns against those who, quote, seem inclined to use the name of freedom as the pretext for refusing to submit to authority and for making light of the duty of obedience to lawful authority. And they're meaning here specifically civil authorities if you look at the context of the quote. Um, So I think that does give a reason for public health authorities to uh, stipulate things that may go against one's misinformed conscience, but certainly not against one's rightly informed conscience. Jabber Haiti, and I have a follow up to Jason, but John, if you'd like to, um, if you'd like to to jump in here, please do. 
Well, my I was going to try to go back to public health myself. I think some of those points took us took us back to our our last session or two. So, uh, if you want to make one, a, a point in response, I I, I was going to try to continue the discussion about uh, public health principles. So, all right. Well, actually, Jason, it, it goes back to I mean, it's it's the issue that you've been bringing up again and again that you know the church has said that it's morally acceptable to receive a COVID nineteen vaccine, and and both John and I we we. We agree with that. That's what the church says. But I guess there's kind of a disconnect here for me. So, you know, while we agree that the church has stated that receiving a COVID 19 vaccine is morally acceptable, how does that acceptability translate into, as you would say, quote, no moral grounds to oppose it or even into moral obligation? See, that, that's what I'm, I'm not sure. seeing. So I would say there's, there's three things going on. One is, having declared at the level of a CDF note that is acceptable, again, Pope Francis twice has gone further to say it's a moral obligation. As John has rightly pointed out, this is not the same level of authority. It's not the same level of teaching. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's strictly should be strictly determinative of, of the Catholic individual's conscience to, again, view COVID-19 vaccination as a moral obligation. But because it is the Pope speaking to the global church, it is something that we ought to take seriously. It should at least weigh within the conscience uh, of the individual Catholic. We combine that with the legitimate authority of civil and institutional authorities um, informed by the empirical data. And as you know, we pointed out, there's you know some legitimate grounds, maybe some disagreement here. But the point being is that there's authorities do have a legitimate authority to institute something like these mandates under their obligation to safeguard the common good, which includes the health of, of the populace. And so Catholics have a moral obligation, as I just quoted from Dignitatis Humanae, to, to, again, not assert their conscience, unless it's an infallibly informed conscience, um, to object to that authority. We actually have a moral obligation to submit to legitimate authorities exercising that legitimate authority. This is not like Dr. Martin Luther King giving engaging in civil disobedience against um, immoral, illegitimate uh, segregation laws, right? And so unless one is going to completely say, and I, and I haven't heard you and John make this argument, but this would be argument that would need to be made, is that the public health authorities who are instituting these vaccine mandates are doing something that is intrinsically immoral, and outside the bounds of their legitimate authority. That would be the argument that needs to be made to undercut what I think is a serious moral obligation to submit to those authorities um, unless one's conscience is infallibly informed. Very interesting. And again, we uh, we could go on <laughs> for hours on this, and, and, and I don't want to do it. I, I guess I, I would just say at this point, Jason, because this conversation is between you and John, I think we would agree to disagree on this. Um, I, I think the, the the connection between or the, the leap from acceptable to obligation, I, I think it's one that I, I just I, I can't I don't see that one right now. But anyway, John Berhandy, you wanted to go back um, uh, on public health. Yeah, and 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 I will in about ten seconds. <laughs> just because you went on, just because this went on, you know. Actually, I'll tell you, and and we did say uh, last time that, the, that clearly, uh, additional 
development of the church's teaching sure. in this area is necessary. I, I think it will be interesting to compare and to some extent, uh, see, um, I can't think of the right term here, the analogy between uh, the, the moral obligation to provide food and water to people, including new, uh, uh, assisted nutrition and hydration, uh, so long as they're not dying, et cetera, et cetera. You know, how an obligation like that and how that was taught after due consideration and taught in some very specific, recognizably authoritarian ways, how that would compare to uh, this notion of having to take a particular vaccine, you know? Uh, Anyway, so, you know, I I just want to lay that out there. I I think that would be interesting in the future because I can say – uh, you know, we can look at the general framework of the ch- uh, church's teaching on ordinary and extraordinary means. And uh, it seems to me, you know, in those broad principled terms, we, we could see that we have an obligation to care for the common good, to have due regard for the, uh, the health and safety of our neighbor and any number of things. When you get down to specifics, about, well, what exactly is an ordinary means and why? And which of these ordinary means does the church teach very specifically? You know, you actually have a moral obligation to pursue that particular ordinary means. It'll be interesting to see if the church chooses to move in the direction of treating immunization as a class and 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 coming down to specific vaccines you know in this same framework i i don't think they're anywhere we're close to that yet so anyway uh yeah back to public health principles you know i i found the the, the whole conversation uh you know some of the readings and and heard some interesting podcasts including a a guy who's written on the ethics of public health from australia uh, pretty interesting. Um, they made a lot of sense. I, I guess, you know, one thing I think where we might intersect, I guess, with these public health principles. Now, one of them is utility, which I think is, you know, the obligation to promote health, uh, the health of the public, the health of the vulnerable, you know, those kinds of things. Um and it's a kind of utilitarian principle. And of course, there are some others, including justice and liberty and so on. But, um, you know, we might have a particular concern um, about how that is applied in a, in a public health situation that we've had now with this pandemic. Uh, because if you think about this, the pandemic has affected the old the most, you know, uh, I'm trying to think if, is that 80% of all deaths occurred in uh, ages 65 and older? A huge percentage. You know, so the old are definitely the most at risk. You know, so so uh, what would that mean, I guess, when it comes to saying, but in the name of protecting public health or other public goods, you know, what do we owe to the elderly? You know, on the one hand, I think no one would argue, uh, well, somehow we have to put the elderly in the, the streets or we can't afford to care for them or something like that. 
But, you know, we had a couple of states. Uh, New York was one. And our state of Pennsylvania was another uh, that, that strangely had a policy of returning COVID-infected patients uh, to nursing homes. Anyway, I, I, I think what would be interesting, I guess, when we got into, we get into some of these principles and we would say, well, how would we approach that notion of utility, uh, which is, you know, a secular principle and could probably be defined, you know, with different parameters, how would we look at that maybe in a different way or how would we bring particular concerns about the dignity of the person to that? You know, and it, it might be that we would insist on protections of the elderly and, and vulnerable in, in a way that maybe some other people would not. So I, I thought I would throw that out there. One other thing I'm going to throw out as uh, a potentially problematic era, uh, area of um, public health I don't know if it's ethics or, you know, or sort of the public health MOA, but I guess one of their, one of the things that defines it is uh, something called unanimity and messaging. They, they like to take the example of smoking or something, you know, they want one clear message and they don't want anybody saying, well, not everybody gets lung cancer, you know, or something like that. So, so that, that evidently is, is a value in public health. But I wonder if we've been well served by that MOA, that strategy, that value in this particular kind of pandemic where we have a very novel disease, where we've had a very novel political and societal response, and where the technologies for dealing with it, including these brand new vaccines, uh, are also very novel. So are we well served by not having a diversity of viewpoints coming, you know, from people in public health? I guess that's a good question. Yeah. Joe, can I just... All right, we could... Sorry, can I just say two super quick very, things? Super quick. Very briefly. I just, we got to move on. Yeah, I just want to say that the concerns that John's raising about utility and that unanimity thing are absolutely valid. No question. But... Public health ethics is not monolithic, just as even secular clinical ethics is not monolithic, and nor is actually Catholic bioethics not monolithic. Hence, we're having debates like this. Uh, the point being is that um, you notice I didn't invoke the principle of utility, nor does the author I cite in my original essay, um, because not all public health ethicists accept want to adopt that sort of utilitarian ethic and find a problematic for all the same rate ways that the three of us would find it uh, problematic. And then the unanimity thing, I, I don't know if I call that a value. I would call that, a, again, a strategy. Use that word, John. And yeah, that's is that really, a, we can ethically, morally challenge that as a strategy for sure. So I just want to say that. I just don't want to characterize all public health ethics with one broad brush. All right. So let's, um, we spent actually a lot more time on public <laughs> health than, than I thought we would, but it's, 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 a, it's a good, interesting um, discussion. So uh, changing gears, let's talk a bit about the common good. So, and this is, we're actually kind of going back to part one of the interview here. So uh, arguments in favor of vaccine mandates often cite the common good. And so Jason first, and then John, I'm wondering what exactly is the common good and, and how do we understand it in light of COVID-19 vaccines and vaccine mandates? Yeah. So Vatican II's pastoral constitution, the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Space, uh, defines the common good as, quote, 
the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more easily and more more fully and more easily. And this is also quoted in the Catechism. The Catechism then goes on to enumerate three essential elements of the common good. Respect for and promotion of the fundamental rights of the person, prosperity or the development of the spiritual and temporal goods of society, the peace and, and the peace and security of the group and of its members. The Catechism further exhorts that, quote, the dignity of the human person requires the pursuit of the common good. Everyone should be concerned to create and support institutions that improve the conditions of human life, and that it is the role of the state to defend and promote the common good of civil society, and it's the proper function of authority to arbitrate in the name of the common good between various particular interests. So, applying that to COVID-19 vaccine mandates, assuming that such mandates create a social condition, namely herd immunity, that allows people to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. And as I said before, we've all seen how the pandemic, particularly when lockdowns and social distancing were required, has inhibited such fulfillment. Then the state, in the form of such mandates, after having attempted education and inducement, is arguably fulfilling its proper role to defend and promote the common good. And we, particularly Catholics, should be concerned to support such mandates and not request what I consider to be ill-founded religious exemptions, as a means of respecting the dignity of the human person. John Berhaney, your response. Well, I would say that, um, just a quick point, that the, uh, the doctrine or the concept of the common good in the Catholic moral tradition does go uh, well back, before Vatican II, uh, and even the 20th century. It goes back uh, to Matthew 25, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it goes back to Aristotle, too. <laughs> Was he a Catholic? (laughs) Proto-Catholic. I think my daughter, though, was outraged. I'm trying to remember which circle of hell Dante put him in. (laughs) My my daughter was absolutely outraged. As she should be, yes. (laughs) Kind of wrote off the whole book after that. But anyway, um, yeah, well, there there is a more traditional notion of the common good. The common good is, is a very complex notion. I just want to mention a a more traditional definition of the common good, which was understood as the good common to societies that share a way of life and goals in common. And so a marriage uh, actually has a common good. Uh, A marriage and a family and a society and the church uh, are three fundamental relationships that have a common good. Now, the uh, the definition that Jason quoted is from Gaudium et Spes. It was used by uh, Pope John the Twenty Third in, in Matrat Magistra uh, and Pachman Terrace. And in fact, it turns out it was used in an encyclical of Pope Pius the Twelfth. I think right on the eve of World War Two. So, so it's out there, and I I think it's um you know it's an entirely valid definition. I would say uh, one, one thing I think, and it's, it's an interesting way that this definition, and, and even there has been a development, uh, I would say, in the church's teaching, even the way it talks about common good, that coincided with the post-World War II recovery, certainly economic, but it was more than an economic recovery and the rise of welfare states in the West, uh, you know, modern secular 
welfare states. I, I do think the way the church uh, talks about the common good has changed. And, and one caveat I want to throw in is those references to the sum total of conditions could easily be understood in a, quanti- in a quantitative or instrumental way. And yet I think there's more that those things can be part of the common good. Having a, you know, a functioning healthcare system uh, can be very important to the common good of a society. And a functioning healthcare system is going to involve everything from uh, hospital buildings to medical records to the the healthcare personnel. But anyway, I, I don't think we can be too material or instrumental in our conception of the common good. Now, I guess the thing I should just uh, say or assert is that the public health is a significant part or dimension of the common good, and it's very important to serve that well. And I would say, uh, because Vatican II said the common good is the sum total of social conditions, and there are certainly other things in society, (laughs) including uh, human rights, even including uh, the right to belong to a union and to work in a you know work within a union contract or something like that, and, and to be protected and to enjoy the benefits of the, that contract. These are these are all parts of the common good, and they all need to be protected. They need to be protected by public authorities, but. Uh, at least in the West, I think the church agrees with this notion that public authorities are, um, you might say, under an obligation to seek the truth, the true common good, respect human rights, and our public authorities, at least in Western democracies, should be accountable to us. So everything they say or do, including during a pandemic, may not be right. we can owe them, uh, you know, I think a legitimate duty of, of loyalty and obedience, uh, legitimate, which may not mean going <laughs> complying with every last thing they dictate, but with many measures ordered uh, to the common good. And then we can have legitimate uh, input on those things and perhaps change our leaders uh, or change laws and regulations to better serve all of the goods uh, inherent in the common good. So uh, I'll pull up there. Yeah, John, you kind of, um, and Jason, you may want to respond to what John said by responding to this next question, because John kind of anticipated where my next question was going. And, and, and that question deals with other factors in the common good. So oftentimes, and, I, and I've heard people critique, and I'm not, not saying you here, Jason, but I've heard people critique that, you know, when we're talking about the common good with this whole COVID-19 vaccine uh, issue, really the only thing we seem to be talking about is public health, or at least that's what gets emphasized. And so in addition to that, now again, certainly public health is, is an important, very important consideration of the common good. But in addition to that, what other factors need to be considered or need to be included when we're talking about the public uh, excuse me, when we're talking about the common good. Yeah, no, I agree um, 100% with with John emphasizing, um, that again, that quotation from God in that space, we should consider the sum total of, again, relevant social conditions. Um, and he talked about some of the other things that should factor in. One thing he didn't mention, though, but I'll emphasize um, that I think we should keep at the forefront of, again, our conscientiously informed policies 
is the church's exhortation of a preferential option for the poor and vulnerable. So we should consider, for example, the vulnerability of persons who can't be vaccinated for medical reasons and therefore are Mm -hmm. dependent on herd immunity being established, the economic impact of lockdowns and quarantines, which again, we've, I mentioned earlier and uh, you know, these things could become necessary again um, if the virus continues to mutate into even more infectious and deadly and, God forbid, vaccine-resistant forms. The amelioration of politically and socially created health disparities um, and the particular vulnerabilities experienced by persons with disabilities. Uh, again, I could go on. This list by no means exhaustive, but all those right. things should be taken into consideration as well. Yeah, John, uh, anything to add to that? Well, yeah, it's it's complicated, definitely a complicated set of things to try to balance. You know, it's interesting, Jason mentioned concern for the poor. It's interesting that the measures that were used, um, and this is going to, I think, straddle, I think, public health and the common good here, the lockdown of huge, if not all segments of society, uh, essentially of the healthy. In in this response, it, it was an interesting, it was an interesting response to this pandemic. If you go back to past pandemic planning, uh, none of it called for locking down essentially all of society or as much of society as possible. You know, for example, there was a lot of tension, a lot of attention, and J- Jason mentioned earlier uh, Fauci's noble lie about masks. But, but the interesting thing is, there had been randomized control uh, studies of mask wearing for uh, respiratory diseases or communicable diseases. I think there were five to seven studies uh, prior to COVID 19, and none of them found much effectiveness for the use uh, of masks. Uh, one more thing I'll mention real quick because it's it's one part of public health, and but it does relate to the common good and people that we want to protect. Pre-COVID pandemic planning emphasized that schools should be the last thing to close and the first thing to open and at most should be closed down for a period of four weeks at the height uh, of a pandemic. And yet we've had schools, and, and unfortunately this has differed significantly by states, some of which have, were effectively held no school for a year and a half. So I think I go back and I look at this and I think as I understand it, in what I've read, public health authorities, epidemiologists, doctors who specialize in those things, really need to uh, come up with proposals, come up with estimates of the various measures out there that will do some good and, and what their impacts will be uh, and that ought to be a pretty comprehensive or holistic presentation, I guess, of uh, of options and costs. And they need to hand those up to appropriate government authorities who who should implement them. Uh, I I think well, and and I think a lot of that has not worked well 
uh, in this pandemic. I don't think it's actually worked well at all. And um, and I'd say the last thing is to come back. I know Jason has said, well, we, we had all this period of public education and persuasion and and I almost went for the Big Mac or the the the, uh, the fast food option that Governor Bill de Blasio was holding out for a while. But, um, you know, n- now that we've exhausted all our carrots, it's it's time to get out that big stick. <laughs> and I um, I think there are a lot of questions. There's still a lot of questions, I, I think, about uh, what the appropriate course of action is for sets of individuals. And so uh, I think we have to, uh, yes, the church calls us to respect the common good, uh, actually serve the common good and respect public authorities. And I I would agree with all that. And yet my my ultimate point in mentioning union contracts and things, for pilots who are part of a union and view this requirement to be vaccinated as a condition of employment, as a change in contract – imposed outside of a contract negotiation, I think they're thoroughly entitled as part of serving the common good to say, hey, we agreed on the conditions of employment. This contract's good for a period of time. You you can't change it outside that. And we're going to, in a sense, litigate these rights in court. And I think we we have to keep working with public officials. We can appropriately... uh, have resort to the judiciary, although I haven't been that helpful, I suppose, uh, depending on your point of view, uh, this is all part of protecting the common good. Yeah, I guess we could probably add firefighters and police men and women to that list as well, too. But um, I, I'm going to exercise, speaking of authoritative speaking <laughs> from part one, I'm going to exercise magisterial moderator authority here. <laughs> because uh, we're kind of up against it for time. I'd just like to briefly uh, get into our last uh, topic, and it's prophetic witness. And Jason, John, we've had a, I, I think we've had a cordial, although critical discussion, and I, I, I think there's, I, I think it's been very good, and I thank you both for that. But I'm wondering if maybe we could, maybe in this last question, I hope maybe, maybe we can um, try to stake out some common ground here. So Jason, uh, you first, how do we bring Catholic witness into the public square on the vaccine mandate issue, or, or maybe posed differently, what concretely does it mean to be a prophetic Catholic voice in the ongoing public debate? Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to the the, the fundamental issue, I mean, we, we've talked about all sorts of issues related to, again, legitimacy of authority, trust in authority, legitimacy of mandates, and so on. I mean, those are all important questions worthy of debate, um, both in the secular and the Catholic, just the general you know public arena. Um, but just going back to the fundamental moral question that Catholics, qua Catholics, not qua Americans, not qua airline pilots or firefighters, but as Catholics uh, had with respect to the COVID-19 vaccines, and that is their uh, remote connection to the, well, one known abortion, one suspected abortion, although it could have been a natural miscarriage, from which these uh, all the authorized or approved vaccines uh, have some connection, whether in their development or testing. And the CDF, in their statement where they say it is permissible, uh, acceptable to to take in these vaccines, also do call for us to witness to you know the continued evil of abortion. Right, that's something we should not lose sight of. Uh, to simply say that we can get these vaccines and to then go and get them um, does not mean we shouldn't also be speaking out about 
you know, the intrinsic evil of abortion. Um, so that's one important uh, witness. But then again, we need to witness uh, to the common good as we've you know defined and characterized it. And in doing so, and, and again, acknowledging that sum total of goods, uh, we have to, you know, we have to emphasize all those aspects of good. And, you know, I, you know, John earlier in his last comment talked about like the uh, judiciary system and said whether it's failing us or not depends on your point of view. And I think this is part of the issue here, right? We have all these competing points of view and this is the danger. I'm not saying it is. But this is the danger of the dictatorship of relativism that Benedict XVI warned about. Again, I'm not saying that every individual Catholic who's refusing the vaccine or so on is, has fallen into this, this, this mindset. But I do think that we've lost a sense of, of solidarity, right? That's another important term from Catholic social teaching, important concept that we haven't uh, really emphasized, right? So we must witness to that, that ethic that's articulating Catholic social teaching, emphasized you know, by St. John Paul II, and really acknowledging that, you know, Catholics, even American Catholics, um, shouldn't, like lots of other Americans, characterize ourselves as, you know, rugged individuals who pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Rather, as the great living philosopher Alistair McIntyre calls us, we are dependent rational animals, and we must cultivate virtues of acknowledged dependency and responsibility. And so, as we are informing our individual conscience, as we are this, you know, deciding you know, whether to act on our conscience, either to receive a vaccine or to, or, or to fight a vaccine mandate or to try to request an exemption. Um, we need to keep in mind that, yes, our own personal health matters, our, our own witnessing to the dignity of, of human life matters. Um, but, you know, that's more than just the life of the unborn. It's also the life of the poor and the vulnerable. And again, preserving that sum total of conditions that, that promote the common good. John Berhaney, how do we bring a, a prophetic Catholic witness uh, into the public square on the, the vaccine mandate issue? Yeah, so two points uh, briefly, I would say. I, I can agree with much of, I, I think, Jason's concerns there uh, about how Catholics should uh, approach issues. I, I would just say, and this will probably chime uh, a bit, not as not as libertarians, you know, not as autonomous agents, if you will, or those those kinds of things, uh, I, I think we should encourage Catholics to approach these issues as ethical issues and in a distinctive way. And, and, and this idea bubbled up to me now, so I won't try to go too, too deep into it, but there is something, uh, it's actually a question in the Summa Theologia called the order of love, where Aquinas sort of works through, you know, uh, what's the proper way to love oneself, one's parents, one's family, one's neighbor. And I won't work through all that, but I, I think if we as Catholics approach these issues as saying we are pursuing love in an ordered manner based on revelation and on reason. You know, we have no, no fear of reason and, and we're willing to engage with people about that. I think that's one way we could engage more effectively. The second way, I think, is to engage much more effectively on this issue of abortion-derived cell lines. I, I actually have followed this now for over 15 years, and, and I think it's significant uh, it, it certainly bubbled up in the church for the first time in 2005 when it was addressed by the Pontifical Academy for Life. Um, and it, it, in a sense, has not been resolved. 
because the the way the Pontifical Academy for Life addressed it in part was by saying it's permissible to use these things temporarily, you know, or until there are alternatives and people should call for alternatives. And um, and Dignitas Personae from the CDF actually was quite critical of scientists and companies that traffic in these things and had a lot to say on that. And then in one sentence, more or less said it could be for permissible for people like parents of, of children to use. But um, what I want to say is that I think the church could witness more effectively on this issue if at the same time, Pope Francis, the CDF, any bishops are speaking on this issue and saying it's permissible to use the vaccine. There are good reasons to use the vaccine. Think of your neighbor. Think of the immunocompromised. Within the same breath, they should be saying, we realize these things were developed using cell lines derived from elective abortion, and that's not acceptable. And we have to change that. And I think they need to keep that at the forefront because over the last 20 years, in key, at key times, when scientists were trying to get Bush, uh, George W., to fund human embryonic stem cell research, they appealed to the use of vaccines based on cell lines derived from elective abortion to say we already benefit from abortion. You know, this is acceptable. When we had that Planned Parenthood uh, body part selling controversy in 2015, and they went out to doctors and researchers, and they said, is it true you guys are getting this materials? And they were saying, yeah, you know, we need it for cures and research, but it's okay because our vaccines essentially depend on this too, and we're all for vaccines, and most people. Uh, certainly are for vaccines. So I would say that the connection between vaccines and abortion-derived cell lines in general, not just about the COVID-19 vaccines, has been a smoldering issue for a while. You know, COVID sort of fanned those flames. But I think the way we could witness more effectively is not by, in a sense, ignoring the issue, it's by recalling the issue and saying we need a change and we need it soon, even as the church is saying uh, these vaccines are permissible. So I, I hope that anybody, but especially those leaders, bishops, pope, etc., who speak on this issue, never neglect this particular issue of abortion-derived cell lines. Jason, John, we have spoken at length for these past three episodes. Lots and lots of good stuff. Jason, give us some final words of wisdom for our listeners. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's wisdom or not, but um, but well, first of all, let, he says that. Well, first, everybody says that. Well, first of all, let me start by thanking both you, Joe, and John, uh, and the NCBC as a whole for for inviting me to engage in this, you know critical fraternal dialogue on, on this most pressing concern, you know, for the Catholic faithful and American society as a whole. And again, I want, you know, uh, I pray that the Lord will, you know, continue to bless you and your ministry to the church. Looking forward to continuing to serve the NCBC, but, and putting this journal together. Um, and, and yeah, I've, I've definitely, uh, gained a lot, uh, from, from this conversation, uh, 
great questions and and great points, John, you made uh, along the way. Uh, so my final my final thoughts is is to say that regardless of how we might disagree about what the church has taught regarding COVID nineteen vaccines, whether vaccine mandates are justifiable public health measures, whether Catholics have a legitimate reason to request a religious exemption to such mandates, um, the CDF is clear that if one elects, for whatever reason, not to be vaccinated, um, that they must adhere, they use the word must, to other public health measures, including, you know, when when advised, public uh, mask wearing, social distancing, quarantining when necessary. What is, or at least should be, uncontroversial is that a Catholic cannot in good conscience refuse to adhere to any of these measures under the false belief that the COVID virus either doesn't exist is not a material threat to the common good, or that such measures are wholly ineffective. We can debate the relative effectiveness of one thing versus another, but the the epidemiological data across the past year and a half is clear that some combination of these measures is effective. Um, and so, uh, hopefully, there's no one who you know who is listening who is of that mindset. But we know that there are people like that out there, and if they do have that mindset, that is one thing again that the CDF has been. Uh, pretty definitive about. Yeah. Jason, I just want to say thank you for, um, as well. I mean, it's, uh, it takes a certain amount of guts to, uh, to accept our invitation. To go up against John's uh, massive intellect. Yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But I hope it's, I hope it's been a fruitful, uh, fruitful discussion for our listeners. John Berhaney, your, uh, final words of wisdom. Yes. Well, I, I I could say that I left it all on the field. Yeah. No, I'll tell you one thing that so many uh, strange things, you know, have come out of this pandemic. Uh, I guess one thing that sort of strikes me a bit uh, is the polarization, significant amount of polarization, which preexisted it. Uh, I don't know if if we could have flipped a coin or something and said, you know, 50% chance of more polarization, 50% chance we all pull together, you know, but uh, I don't know what determined that. But I I guess I hope that we can continue uh, frank conversations uh, like this because polarization has been bad and, and an element of control that I've seen coming from a variety of. Uh, of sources, certainly the government, certainly the major media, certainly the social media, a lot of attempts to control people and to control conversations. And, and that's been a concern. So I guess my, my, my word of wisdom or, or hope would be that, you know, we continue to ease the polarization and, and we have the freedom to bring things into the light and discuss them, ask the questions and so on. And um, somehow use th- this challenge and the suffering and the threats uh, as a chance to be better, you know. So that's my goal. Amen. And I hope this podcast goes a little way toward doing that. So Jason Emerald, John Brahaney, thank you for joining me on Bioethics on Air. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, 
please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.